Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would guide us, and Lord, that you would open by your Spirit your precious word, your word, which is the word of life. Father, the same word that brings men and women and children from spiritual death is here among us, Lord, is with us, is uh, in these, these books that you've given us, Lord. But we know that we will not understand anything of your word apart from the grace of your spirit opening the understanding. So we pray for that. Lord, change us. Transform us. May these not just be words we hear, but reach our hearts and our souls and transform the will to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We've been learning that Paul in Romans chapter 6 has taken a brief pause from his discussion of justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone to address a question which he anticipates one of his opponents, particularly a Jewish legalist, would raise regarding grace. And the question is, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Since grace is abounding, and in fact superabounding to people, in bringing them out of a condition of death, spiritual death, leading to physical death, leading to eternal death, and bringing them into the reign of life, the question might be asked, well, why don't we just continue sinning to put grace on display? And Paul shows that is a, a wrong way of thinking altogether. In fact, the person who would even ask such a question doesn't know the Lord. And so this presents an opportunity for Paul to say, look, all who have been justified truly by faith in Christ— must of necessity also be sanctified. That means set apart from their sin more and more unto the likeness of Christ, transformed into him, his image. And the way that he frames that discussion in Romans chapter 6 is simply this. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We have died to sin. We've died to sin. He says in verse 7, we've been freed from sin. And that we now share the life of Christ. His very life is our life because we've been engrafted into him. We've been brought into union with him. We see that in verses 8, verse 10, verse 11, in many places in this chapter. We are not obligated to obey sin anymore as the master of our lives, as was once the case. We don't have to answer when sin comes knocking. In fact, we can say no, and we ought to say no. And the reason given is verse 14 of chapter 6. For sin shall not have dominion over you, 
For you are not under law, but under grace. That's not a command. That's a statement of fact. God's children. We are not under law in this sense for our, for our salvation, for our justification, for our sanctification, and certainly not for our final glorification. We're not under law to rely on our own performance for God, for standing with him. That's not how we've been brought to Christ. In fact, it was his law-keeping and his righteousness that brought us into the realm of grace, and it's now by grace that we all stand. So, really, verses 1 to 14, as I think I mentioned last time, could be summarized as the instruction in this chapter to show what God has done for us. Objective truth. This is what God has done for you in setting you free from sin. And verses 15 to 23 is then the test or the proof. How do I know that I've truly been set free from sin? Well, we're going to look at that more this morning. In fact, we started last week, verses 15 through 17. We asked this key question. Who is your master? Who is your master? There is a, an axiom or a principle, a general principle that everybody can understand with regard to slavery. And Paul puts it this way in verse 16. Don't you know? that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. It's very simple. You know who your master is by whom it is that you obey. What your pattern of obedience is, who you respond to and give your allegiance to as the trajectory and pattern of your life tells you and others who your real master is. Well, we want to ask another question this morning as Paul is continuing his line of thought regarding sanctification and this idea of freedom from sin. And the question this morning, really the central idea is this, that we want to keep in mind. What's true freedom? What is true freedom? And I hope by the end of Today, we can answer that question together. And to help us guide our thinking, I, I, I have an outline that's really in three parts, three headings. The first is we want to look at the so-called, quote-unquote, paradox of slavery to righteousness. The paradox of slavery to righteousness. Secondly, the profile of slavery to righteousness. And thirdly, the purpose of slavery to righteousness. So paradox, profile, and purpose but before we get to those, we have a little bit of background work to do. And some of this is, of this is territory where we've already explored together. But um, there's some new things as well that I hope to unpack today. And, and these are always good things to refresh on as children of God. So let's look at verse 18 together. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from sin. Now, it's important, first of all, as we think about what this means, is to really say, what, what does it not mean? When we say that we've been set free from sin, Paul is not talking about freedom from the presence of sin. Uh, he's not talking about a sinless perfection, a state in which we can arrive in this life where we are completely free of sin so that it has no more influence on us. That's not what he's saying. 
In fact, he's taught us that we have been freed from the penalty of sin. That's another way of saying we've been justified by faith alone in Christ. And now he's dealing with the freedom from the power of sin. We've been freed from its power. That is the thrust of chapter 6. And that's really what it means to be free from sin or set free from sin. We no longer are dominated by sin the way we once were. It's no longer our master, if you can personify sin as a taskmaster. And Paul does. Look at verse 17 with me. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And so in the context of verse 17, how can we think of slavery to sin? Well, if we've been set free from sin, and what that results in is obedience from the heart to that form of doctrine. And, and this last week, you'll recall that the form is the mold, um, the impression into which the Lord pours us as liquid metal in order to take new shape. This is the language of a metalsmith, a blacksmith, a metal worker. We've been poured into the form of the doctrine of God, into his very word to take its shape. And so what does it now mean that we have been freed from sin? Well, we no longer are disobedient to the doctrine of God. We're no longer disobedient to that gospel that has come to us. In fact, we've embraced it and we've embraced it from the heart such that it impacts our wills of necessity. It impacts our wills. That means we are obedient now, not perfectly, but as the new pattern of life, we now obey the Lord. We, in fact, have been enabled to obey the Lord when previously we had no such power. So when we were slaves of sin, we were disobedient to this doctrine, to this gospel, which we have received in which we've been reading in these first six chapters. Living in a state of unbelief previously was really the greatest evidence, the greatest expression that we were slaves to sin. Sometimes people have a hard time uh, relating to this idea of slavery to sin when their sins are not so outward, so evident, so uh, heinous that everyone would say, yes, clearly this person has had a massive transformation in their life. Look, they were a drug addict, drunkard, whatever it might be, to what they are now. But really, when we think of Slavery to sin as disobedience of God, of unbelief in his word. Boy, that touches all of us. We all were disobedient to the word of God because we were enemies in our minds to him. We walked away from him willingly because we loved ourselves and our darkness rather than the light of truth. All because of the corruption of sin. So we have been set free from sin. And that's clear. We also must always, always remind ourselves, who is it that set us free from sin? And that, that may be an obvious question, but it is important to remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that we have been made free. And let's give the credit to whom the credit is due. Did we free ourselves from sin? Did we do something to pull ourselves out of this state of bondage, of a state of unbelief to somehow start believing? What does the text say? It says, being made free from sin. The tense in the Greek is the passive tense. Past tense, but passive. In other words, we 
didn't do this for ourselves. This is something that happened to us. We were acted upon. And who were we acted upon by? Well, look at verse 17 again. Who receives the thanks? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Yes, you obeyed. And there is a human responsibility to believe and obey. And we do. But thanks be to God that we obeyed. It's his enabling, his faith, his ability to trust him that gives him all the glory because he was the one who delivered us into his own mold to receive the truth of his word. And we do so gladly. So the Father, God, you could say, is the one who delivered us from sin. Psalm 116, our corporate reading this morning. Listen to verse 16 again. O Lord, truly I am your servant. That's weak. The word is slave. Truly I am your slave. I am your slave, the son of your maidservant, female slave. You have loosed my bonds. Who was it that the psalmist recognizes as the one who freed him from bondage, bondage to sin. The Lord. It is the covenant-keeping, self-existing, ever-living one, Yahweh, the Lord. But let's also give credit to whom it is due. Look at Romans 4, 5, 19. Romans 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. That that word, as you may recall from that study, means constituted sinners. Put into the class of sinners, regarded as sinners from God's perspective. By one man's disobedience, who's that? That's Adam's disobedience. Many were constituted, declared sinners. So also by one man's obedience, capital M for man, who's that? Christ. By his obedience, many will be, same word, made, constituted. Righteous. Righteous. So who is it that is responsible for putting us into the class of the righteous? It's Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. You see, this text is, is teaching us the wonderful truth that truly it was not us that brought us into sin. We received, we inherited a sin nature from our first father, Adam. And just as it is the case that we didn't put ourselves into that predicament, it's also the case that we didn't pull ourselves out of that predicament. It is Christ who pulled us out. We were put into the muck, into the mire, to the cesspool by Adam. And we loved being in there. Don't get me wrong. But it was Christ who pulled us out and washed us, cleansed us, and then clothed us with his robe of righteousness and has indwelt us by his very spirit to transform us to be more like himself. You see, it's Christ who is to be credited as well, which is the same thing as saying the Lord is the one who loosed my bonds. The Father receives credit. The Son receives credit. Jesus says in John 8, 36, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. He's talking about freedom from slavery. Because in that context, he says, He who commits sin, he who practices sin is the sense, is the slave of sin. The Jews were saying, we've never been slaves of anybody. We're sons of Abraham. Ah, but if you are 
the servants of sin, you are the slaves of sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. From what? From sin. In every form. From its penalty, from its power, and in the future, from its presence. Christ receives the glory. He freed us from sin. But let us not stop there. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And the question we posed in that sermon was, who was it who baptized us into Christ? And we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who uh, baptized us into one. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Romans 8 verse 2 Paul is going to say, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. See, the spirit is in Christ. His spirit, his Holy Spirit is in him, making us free from the law of sin and death. So the spirit is to be credited and praised as well. Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God are all involved in setting us free from sin. Praise God. See, brothers and sisters, we have no ability to set ourselves free apart from the superabounding grace of God in Christ toward us. The scripture says we were dead in trespasses and sins. No ability to do anything of spiritual good. We were walking according to the course of this world. We were called sons of obedience because we were obeying the evil one who is the prince of the power of the air, who works in the sons of all disobedience, among whom we once lived. We were those sons of disobedience. And the scripture says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we were totally enslaved to sin. We were dead in it, had no ability to rescue ourselves from it. And what's worse is we didn't want to be rescued from it. We loved, we indulged in the flesh and the desires of the mind. In the language of Luke 11, Jesus says, we were in a fortress. We were in the fortress, in fact, of the strong man armed who keeps all his goods in peace. Listen to this, Luke 11, 21 and 22. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So the strong man here is the devil. He is the strong man who guards his own palace and he keeps his goods in peace. What is that? That's us. We're his goods. We are kept in a state of peace, not the kind of peace we've been learning about in Romans 5, a peace with God, but a peace of complacency, a peace of uh, sleep, spiritual slumber, a, a deadness, um, no desire to leave his service. But when the stronger man, which is Jesus Christ, the righteous, when he comes and overcomes the devil, the strong man armed. What does he do? He binds him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoils. See, 
We had no ability nor desire to be freed from sin. We needed a Savior to come and rescue us, not only because we had no desire ourselves to leave the prison, but because we were kept under guard by a strong man armed, and we had no power to overcome him. A stronger than he was required, and there is only one who fits that description, the Lord Jesus Christ. But thank God the Lord had mercy on us. He did set us free. And he says, having become, having been set free from sin, you now enter another category. You have been made the slaves of righteousness. The King James or the New King James says you became slaves of righteousness. I don't think that language is strong enough. I agree with many who say the same thing. The better translation is really you were enslaved to righteousness. You were enslaved to sin, now you are enslaved to righteousness. In other words, you have a new master, and your new master's name is righteousness. That's just another way of saying the Lord, God Almighty. And I want you to notice he uses the passive tense again. He says you were enslaved to righteousness. This is something that also was done for us. We were moved, in other words, from one type of slavery into another type of slavery. How did that happen? Well, Scripture really describes a two-step process for that in multiple ways. We looked at one already in Psalm 116, verse 16, when the psalmist says, O Lord, truly I am your slave. I am your slave, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. So what has happened there? The Lord has loosed our bonds first, and then he has bound us to himself as our new master, and we his slaves. Or consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he says this in verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. That language is the language of purchasing out of a marketplace. There is one who has come to the marketplace of sin, and he has purchased out of that marketplace slaves to sin. That was you and me. Paid to ransom us, to redeem us, was the price of the precious blood of his dear son. Paul goes on to say, therefore, therefore, since you have been ransomed, paid for, redeemed out of this marketplace of sin, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are Christ's, which are God's. Excuse me. Why? Why is there obligation now upon all children of God to glorify God, not just in our spirits where we are redeemed, but in our bodies where we have not yet been redeemed? Because we are not our own. We have been liberated not to be set free to ourselves, but to be the special possession of God because he paid for our souls. He owns us now. So the two steps here are we've been set free from sin by a purchase, and that has obligated us, has bound us to the Lord as his slaves. Or in the example we just talked about in Luke 11 with the strong man armed, and the stronger than he who overcomes him. Listen to how he finishes this phrase. He takes from him all his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoils. In other words, Christ doesn't just set us free to ourselves, but he divides the devil's spoils and makes them his own. 
He wants the spoils. He doesn't just leave the spoils. Turn with me to um, Isaiah 53 just for a moment. I want you to see this wonderful insight that Isaiah gives us into the same discussion about the spoils. Isaiah 53. Um, look with me at Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Who's being talked about here? The servant, the suffering servant, Christ. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, Jesus. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The Lord will see the seed. Who's that? That's all the promised children of God that Christ was rescuing at the cross. The Lord will see his seed and he will prolong his days. Whose days? Christ's days. He is going to raise him from the dead. He will not allow his soul to see corruption. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. The labor of Christ's soul. Why? By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Salvation is the product of the suffering servant's work. And that pleases the Lord, for he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Just stop there for a second. Has that text ever puzzled you? Who's being talked about here? I will divide him a portion with the great. Who is the great and who is the strong? It is the Lord himself. The Lord is going to divide with the servant, Christ, a portion of the spoils which he has won through his victory over Satan and over sin for us. God, in other words, is going to redeem us to himself. We belong to him. We are his spoils shared with the Godhead, if you will. What a wonderful truth. We are not left to ourselves. We are owned sweetly by the Lord himself. He captures us for himself. Hmm. So all of us start as slaves in the market of sin, but in God's grace. He redeems some out of this marketplace of sin by faith in his son. And he brings us into a new slave market that's called righteousness. It's called righteousness. That may sound counterintuitive to you or paradoxical to you right now. Stay with me. I hope we can resolve this together. Hmm. So what is the paradox? Really, the first heading is the paradox of slavery to righteousness. Now, look at again, look again at verse 18 with me and ask this question. Does verse 18 seem paradoxical to you? Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Having been set free, you became slaves. How can we be set at liberty, set free, and be enslaved at the same time? There's the paradox, or what is the seeming paradox in this verse? There really is no paradox. I want to unpack this with you, but this confuses people sometimes. The truth is this, and here's what we have to keep in mind. Man was never created to be autonomous. 
He was never created to be on his own, independent of God. That's what autonomous means, self-sufficient, self-governing. He actually was created by design to be dependent on God. And that dependence on God is what brings God glory, because after all, it is his design. And through that dependence of humanity on the Lord, we experience true joy. That's what we were designed to do, to be in the presence of the Lord, serving him, worshiping him in righteousness. But what happened when sin entered the world through Adam, as we're told in Romans 5? Well, sin corrupted that model. When we were infected, sin, our hearts were corrupted. That means our thinking was corrupted, our emotions were corrupted, our wills were corrupted. And rather than giving our worship and praise to the creator, we began to give it to the creature. This is where we started in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, remember? Romans 1.25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And who is the creature that we worship and serve? Is it not self? You see, we've become quote-unquote, autonomous in our own thinking, but that's only in the foolish mind of a sinful man. No one is autonomous. The result has been, ever since the fall of man, nothing but misery, vanity, and death. That's a sad summary of the state of humankind, but it is the truth. Why? Because people do not want to acknowledge the Lord's in their minds. They know he is. They know what is right and what is wrong God has implanted all of us through a conscience, that knowledge. But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God in this sense. I don't want there to be a God in my thinking. I want you out of my mind. And so we willfully turn away from him and we pursue our own pleasures and lust. And therein lies the heart of sin. So God in his response does what? He gives us over. And we looked at this Judicial abandonment idea in Romans 1 in many ways. He gives us over to a a debased mind. That is a mind that is non-functioning spiritually. To a mind that has no ability to uh, understand spiritual truth. And not only that, but he gives us over to all kinds of evil passions and lusts and desires. Sexual sins of all kinds. Why? Because we've turned away from the Lord and he is simply letting us reap what we have sown. He's letting us be corrupted by our own sinful hearts, which are a cancer that eat away at us and destroy us. So is man apart from God ever free? No. The reality is that every single human being on this planet is 100% dependent on the Lord, even for their next breath. Even for their next breath. The scripture describes the life of a man as a vapor. Right On a cold morning, you can expel your breath and you see it frost. You see the the smoke, the vapor. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. That's what life is like for man because of sin. Fleeting, passing, here today and gone tomorrow. My friend, if you don't know the Lord this morning, your life is hanging in the balance. Your life is one breath away from an eternity in everlasting destruction if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So to say that we are free from God in any sense is truly a fool's statement. 
It's an illusion to believe that we have any kind of security in ourselves or that we can exist on our own. We are totally dependent and dependent on the Lord. But this is also true. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. It does dominate, doesn't it? And we see that easily when we look at every level of society. We can see sin in its domination, especially between man and man. From one individual to another, or from a group of people to another group, or from a nation to another nation, at all levels, we see that sin dominates, it exploits, it oppresses others. And it's easy to recognize that in others. And so, what is the world's idea of freedom? If you were to ask the average person, what is the idea that they have of freedom? What does it mean to be truly free? I don't know, I, you know, rather than polling everybody, I went to the dictionary. What does the American Webster's Merriam-Webster Dictionary say? Here's what it says. Freedom is the quality or state of being free, such as the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. Also, liberation from slavery or from the power of another. Uh, It goes on to say, in fact, in an adjoining passage about liberty, here's what the dictionary would say. A man enjoys liberty when no physical force operates to restrain his actions or volitions. That's his will. In other words, no outside influence that would impact me in any way, that would influence me, that would stop me from doing anything I want to do. And that's what the world wants. It wants to throw off the yoke of oppression and bondage of any kind, especially from others. And that's, that's their idea of freedom. Externally, take off the yoke. Right? We see that, in fact, in the scripture in Psalm 2. That may sound familiar when I talk about throwing off the yoke or casting off the cords. Psalm 2, verse 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. That's, in a nutshell, mankind's view toward God. Let's cast off his yoke. It is oppressive on us, and let us be truly free. And, of course, if you keep reading in that psalm, you see that the Lord's response is, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not phased by that in the least. Breath is in his nostrils, has no true power. He's, He's acting simply as a fool. Now, what if the oppression is not an outward oppression on us, but is actually within us? How do we get away from ourselves to free ourselves? You see, that's where the world has no answers to this question of true freedom. Christianity is the only truth that has an answer to that question. And you know what Christianity's answer is, what the Bible's answer is? You cannot do that. You can't free yourself from your own self, but God can. How? By making you a new creation in Christ. By causing you to be born again. Not reforming who you were, but changing you altogether from inside. Giving you a new heart. Giving you a new mind. Giving you a new will. That's a supernatural work of God alone. That is true freedom. Listen to this, Romans 6, verse 18, where we are in the same passage. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Here's what God defines as true for us. It's actually slavery to righteousness, to himself. That sounds paradoxical. That sounds self-contradictory, but it is not. Slavery to God and slavery to righteousness is, in fact, 
the prescription for true freedom and true happiness in God. Here's another way of saying it. You must hate your old life. You must hate your old life of sin and you must renounce all self-righteousness. That's the source of all misery and death. You must start over in life with a new heart and have new desires of the Lord and consequently love your neighbor as yourself. You must hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the Lord says in Matthew 5. And you must hate your own sin. You must be enslaved to righteousness as your new life. Who can do that? Only God can give a new spiritual birth. Only God can purchase us out of the marketplace of sin. Only God can loose our bonds and bind Satan to rescue us for himself. So, God's idea of freedom. Here's another example. We read it this morning as our call to worship. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I, Jesus speaking, will give you rest. My yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what is a yoke? A yoke is what farmers would put on animals, beasts of burden, typically ox, oxen, so that they can plow a field in a straight line. You would never yoke a big ox with a donkey or with a horse. They're mismatched. You put two oxen together so that they can run in a straight line. That's the imagery here when he talks about a yoke. When we came to faith in Christ, we were, guess what? Yoked to him in order that we might walk in what Paul has called newness of life. A new straight row, a path that the Lord has established for us. Yoked to Christ. And what does he say? He says, my yoke is not heavy, but easy. Light. Light. How can a yoke on an oxen, on an ox, be light? As I was um, thinking about the text this week, I happened to be reading part of a sermon um, from Charles Spurgeon called The Two Yokes, which was taken out of the book of Jeremiah um, when he was illustrating for Israel that they were going to be taken away by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in bondage. They were going to have a yoke put on their necks. He was illustrating it by literally strapping a yoke to his body. Listen to, I'm going to quote from Spurgeon now. I want, you know, I'm doing this because I, I really was blessed by the way in which Spurgeon said this, and I think you will be as well, as we think about the seeming paradox of slavery and freedom in Christ. Listen to this. This is a quote. The yoke of Christ is framed in our interest. The law of Christ is drawn up and dictated by our counselor for our welfare. If man were infinitely wise and could draw up a code for himself, which would involve no hardship and entail all that was happy, he could devise no regulations more healthful, more profitable, or more pleasant than those of the Savior. He would discover was the highest wisdom to repent of sin, the most delightful necessity, to follow after holiness, the most blissful pursuit, and to serve God the greatest delight. Service and sovereignty blend here, as when Joseph became prime minister of Pharaoh, he was lord over all the land of Egypt. 
To serve God in very truth is to reign and to become a servant of Christ, is to be made a king and a priest unto God, to be ennobled with as much dignity as human nature can bear. Jesus Christ, if he forbids you anything, only forbids you what would harm you. Say any of you of sin, tis sweet? Ah, and are so and so are many poisoned things. Your nature goes after it. Yes, and many a sick man's nature craves for that which would be his poison. The Lord Jesus denies to those who take his yoke nothing but that which would be injurious to them. He, his is a blessed yoke because it is the yoke of righteousness and it is the yoke of personal benefit. He keeps going. His yoke is easy because he gives us what he requires. He gives us what he requires. This is such an important truth. Listen as I continue to quote here. Does, does thou not, excuse me, does thou say, I cannot believe? Have you asked for faith? Is your heart hard? Have you asked to have it softened? If you cannot come to Christ with broken hearts, come for broken hearts, for they are his gift. He will give you all, all that his gospel demands, for he is Alpha and Omega, the author and the finisher of our faith. It is an easy yoke then, since he gives what he requires. And then Spurgeon gives this wonderful analogy uh, of the Queen of England. Listen to this. I think I have heard that Queen Elizabeth carried the crown in the procession of her sister Mary at the coronation. And she remarked that it was very heavy. But someone standing by told her it would not be heavy when she had to wear it herself. So the precepts which some men do but carry in their hands seem very heavy. But when a man comes to know Christ and to love him, those very precepts become light and easy. And then he goes on to describe this, these pursuits which to the non-Christian heart are distasteful and repulsive to the renewed heart, matter of intense delight. A man shall carry a bucket of water on his head and be very tired with the burden. But that same man, when he dives into the sea, shall have a thousand buckets on his head without perceiving their weight, because he is in the element and it entirely surrounds him. The duties of holiness are very irksome to men who are not in the element of holiness. But when once those men are cast into the element of grace, they then bear ten times more and feel no weight, but are refreshed thereby with joy unspeakable. Christ, you it easy, for the new heart rejoices in it. Do you see what he's saying? He's solving the paradox or the seeming, the apparent paradox of this question of how are we free and yet enslaved at the same time? And his answer is, our nature has changed. Our desires have changed so that that which was heavy and irksome and grievous to us before, before we knew Christ and before we had a heart for him, have now become easy, in fact, enjoyable. We love his service. We love his yoke. We find our pleasure in serving him, don't we? Yes. yes. So his yoke is easy because it benefits us. It doesn't harm us. His yoke is easy because he's changed our nature and our hearts from craving sin to craving righteousness. We find our greatest pleasure serving the Lord and doing what is right in every situation. And when we don't, we repent. We turn back to the Lord in forgiveness and we find forgiveness and rest for our souls. His yoke is easy because, brothers and sisters, this truth Everything he requires of us in this life as Christians, he supplies. 
He's the infinite resource for all our needs. We, we just need to look to him in faith. So this is the answer to the apparent paradox. Slavery to God is actually the greatest freedom and joy that a person can possibly experience. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Being near you is really the, 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 the joy because you are the source of all joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We've been brought to the Lord through Christ. He is now a delight to our soul because he's changed our desires. He's changed us to love him. We don't see his yoke as heavy but light. We don't find true pleasure anymore in those things of which we now are ashamed. Paul is going to say in verse 21, that past life and the, the way of living that we used to have, we don't take pleasure or glory in those things anymore. Those things are our shame. So first heading again, <clears throat> the paradox. Second heading, and this is briefer, is the profile. What's the profile of someone who is a slave to righteousness? What, is, what does it look like to be enslaved to righteousness? And I just want to offer three brief points on this. There's many, I'm sure, that could be brought up, but just to get us thinking. First is we serve the righteous one. We serve the righteous one, the Holy One of God. That's a name for Jesus Christ. And we follow him. Listen to John 12, verse 26, our Lord's words. If anyone serves me, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So here's a picture of being yoked to Christ, right? But instead of being yoked in a side-by-side -side fashion, as we were talking about before, he actually leads in this illustration. He leads us and we follow him. That's another way of saying we obey him. We do his will from the heart. Just as we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered, we now continue in our sanctification to obey from the heart that form of doctrine. Not by external obedience to the letter, but by internal obedience to the spirit of God's word. So here we are. We're bound to the Lord. We're living out a holy life in his strength. Again, everything he requires of us, he enables for us. He is our resource. And you say, well, okay, what about when we obey? What about in the analogy of the oxen plowing in a straight line? One of us, me, we veer off course. How does that relate to being a slave of righteousness? Well, the Lord, does he not chasten his children whom he loves? Does he not know how to correct us and turn us away from our sins to bring us back on course? He does. That's part of our being slaves of righteousness or enslaved to righteousness. You will walk in all my ways, in my statutes, and observe them and obey them. That's a promise. And I will make sure you do by course correcting you when you get off course. We feel that with conviction, don't we, when we sin? And we repent. He brings us to that. That's a gift. That's supernatural, loved ones. That's not something that could just be conjured up. That's a given gift of the Spirit of God. We value that. We treasure repentance. So first, we serve the righteous one. We serve Christ. That's what it means to be enslaved to righteousness. We're enslaved to him. What else? We love what our master loves. And what does he love above all things? Holiness. Righteousness. In Romans 14, just flip the page or a couple pages. Romans 14, 
Paul's going to get into a discussion of Christian liberty. <clears throat> and um, as part of his discussion, starting in verse 14, he says, look, there's nothing unclean in and of itself. If a person regards something as unclean, then it's unclean to him. But you have tremendous liberty as a Christian. All things are clean to you because you are acting in faith now. So if you use your Christian liberty, but you use it in a way that disregards your brother or your sister, you offend them, in other words, by your freedom, whatever that might be. Um, you're not walking in love anymore. You're not walking in love. And that's a sin. You enjoy with your food the one for whom Christ died. The preeminence, the, the, the lesson is love to Christ is the first thing. And if I love Christ, I will love my brother. And I will gladly set my freedoms aside for the sake of my brother. And then he says this in verse um, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not about... It's not a physical kingdom, first of all. It's not physical pleasures like eating and drinking. It's a spiritual, where the spiritual pleasures are these, righteousness, peace, and joy, all done through the Holy Spirit, brought out through the Holy Spirit. And then look what he says in verse 18. For he who serves Christ, that's the language of slavery. He who serves Christ in these things, what things? Righteousness, peace, and joy loving the things that God loves, upholding the, the tenets of his very kingdom that are precious to him. He who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So we must love what the master loves. We love righteousness. That's right living in every form. We love what is right. We love what pleases God. Thirdly, this. We are learning to think as the master thinks. So we love the Lord himself, righteousness, true righteousness. We love what he loves, which is righteousness. And we are even learning to think as he thinks. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The scripture teaches that we have the mind of Christ as new creatures in Christ. He's given us a new mind. It is the very mind of Christ. And the instruction here in Romans 12 is renew your mind. Um, constantly think on the things of God. Let the word of God pour over your thinking and meditate on it such that you will be transformed by it into the image of Christ, whose mind it is. It's another way of saying you've been poured into the mold and you're taking its shape, right? What that does is it proves God's perfect will for us. And what is the will of God? Well, there's many things that he has disclosed in his word that he says, this is my will. Here's one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And this is the will of God, even your sanctification, your holiness, your righteousness. That's the will of God. How do we do that? By setting our minds on the word of God. We are being renewed as we read and we are being transformed to the likeness of Christ. So we serve righteousness. We love righteousness. We are learning to think righteous thoughts more and more. His own thoughts. That's the profile of one who is a slave to righteousness. 
And then thirdly, third heading is this, the purpose. What's the purpose of slavery to righteousness? Why has God done this for us? Well, I think you could give a few answers from a few different places, but I think what we can first say is what this freedom is not, and we've already said this, this freedom is not a freedom to serve ourselves. It's not a freedom to um, be lazy, indolent. It's also not a freedom to lawlessness, which Paul was addressing in Romans 6. One who says, let's cast off the law in all its forms, and let's just continue to sin with impunity. No, no, no. You were not saved for that purpose. And I want us to think of an example that I think is helpful that Scripture gives us from the Old Testament. Remember when Moses was commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh? And God told Moses to say something specifically to Pharaoh about setting his people free. Do you remember what that was? He said he was told to say this, let my people go, but he doesn't stop there, that they may serve me in the wilderness. That was the rest of the statement. Bring them out of Egypt in order that they might serve me. And so Israel was brought out under the hand of Moses. And what happened? They were brought out not to pursue their own lives and become their own masters, but they were led somewhere specific. They were led to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And what happened at Sinai? They were given the law of God. And they were brought into a covenant relationship with God. They were bound to a covenant called the Old Covenant. And that was described as a scary place, that mountain. The scene was terrifying for Israel, as we talked about, I think, during our Sunday school class, or um, one of the brothers here was talking about earlier. It was a terrifying sight to see the smoke and the fire burning at the top of the mountain and the quaking of the ground and the lightning flashes, the sounds. Uh, The people of Israel did not want to go near the mountain. They were told, if you touch the mountain, you die. If an animal touches the mountain, they will die. It was a picture, really, of condemnation and judgment, not because of God himself, but because you now have sinners who have been marched in procession to stand before the presence of holy God. And when a sinner stands before holy God, he is terrified because God is holy. He demands perfection in all respects, and no sinner can do that. And so of necessity, he is condemned and terrified. What about today? What happens to us when we trust in Messiah, in Christ, and we are led out of spiritual Egypt just as Israel was in their day? Are we just brought out into the wilderness in order to be turned to ourselves, to be our own masters? Or are we also brought to a mountain? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 just for a moment. Hebrews 12. I want you to see this mountain to which we have been brought. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may not, excuse me, that may be touched and that burned with fire. Here's clue number one. You've come to a mountain that is... um, not one that can be touched. Israel came to Sinai, which was a mountain that could be touched. It was a physical place, a physical mountain. They could touch it, and if they did, they would die. You have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. 
And so terrifying, verse 21, was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. There is so much in this passage here, brothers and sisters, but here's the big idea. We have been brought to a spiritual mountain, a mountain that is called the city of the living God. It is heaven itself, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That's the church of Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of the dead. And we in him are firstborn. All of us are registered in heaven. That's where we've come. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, not to the old covenant where we were required to stand on our own two feet and perform for God's standard of righteousness and fail miserably. No, we've come to Jesus who satisfied that old covenant perfectly in order that we may have a better covenant, a new covenant which speaks, the blood of which speaks better things than that of Abel. His blood speaks forgiveness of sins, a putting away of sins as far as the east is from the west so that we never will come into condemnation again. We have been brought out of spiritual Egypt and to Mount Zion, in order that we might be bound to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. You see, we've been brought to him. This is the paradox of slavery. It's a slavery to God is actually the greatest freedom and joy a person can experience because he has changed our nature to be like his. His delights are our delights. The profile of slavery is that we serve the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the righteous one. We love what he loves. We're learning to think his righteous thoughts more and more. The purpose of slavery, to serve the Lord, to be bound to his covenant and yoked to his son. Loved ones, there is, I hope you hear and understand, grudging, nothing burdensome about this slavery to Christ and to righteousness. Um, is, as counterintuitive as it is to the world and may be to us before we understand these things, this is where our true freedom is found. Slavery to righteousness is really the Lord's prescription for joy. And it brings him great glory. It brings him great glory. I want to leave you just with one final illustration in your minds that was helpful for me as I thought about slavery to righteousness. It's in Deuteronomy 15. This is a part of the law that is concerning slaves, bond servants. And Israel was to observe all these laws. Um, this one dealt with what happens when a slave has been in your service for six years um, and the seventh year is coming up. In the seventh year, all slaves were commanded to be released. Why? Because the Lord brought Israel out of slavery. They no longer were slaves. And so they were not to keep slaves themselves long-term. They were to remember that they were slaves of, Israel, of, of Egypt, but no longer. They were slaves to God. So this principle was to be carried out by Israel. And here's how it's described in Deuteronomy 15, 
Verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away from you, you shall not let him go away empty handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor and from your winepress, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with, and you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, now notice this, verse 16. I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you. Then you shall take an awl, that's an instrument, sharp on one end, and thrust it through his ear to the door. And he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. What happens in the case where the slave has an opportunity to be released and he doesn't want to leave your service because he loves you and your house? In that case, you bore his ear through with an awl to the door and that mark signifies that he is your slave forever. He wanted to be your slave forever. Brothers and sisters, that's us. We have had our ear bored through to Christ and we love being his slaves, slaves of righteousness forever. It's not a burden for us. His yoke is truly easy. And I think we feel that more and more as we walk with him and we grow in grace. Our brother Spurgeon said he never met a true Christian who didn't love being yoked to Christ, even after a lifetime of suffering for his name's sake. He never met someone who was disappointed or ashamed of being yoked to Christ. Brothers and sisters, all the suffering that we may experience in this life and will experience is described as a momentary light affliction when you compare it with the exceeding weight of glory, an eternal glory that is going to be revealed in us and to us in that last day when Christ returns. So if that's the case, what do we say? Bore my ear to the, Lord, to the door, Lord. I'm yours. I'm yours. Mark me. Stamp me. And he has. He has. He has circumcised our ears so that we can hear the word of God. He has stamped us with his very Holy Spirit to evidence the fruit of the Spirit, to know both ourselves and that others would know that we are his. Right? We are marked by the Lord forever. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Brethren, I pray that you would rest in the Lord this morning and that you would work out your own salvation, as Paul says to the Philippians, in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is the enablement for everything that he requires of you. That is his covenant promise to all his children. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, I pray that you would repent, that you would Ask the Lord to hear you, to call out, to, in fact, give you that sense of your own sinfulness and impending destruction, that he would so put that on your heart, that you, like the psalmist in 116, calls out on the Lord and then thanks God that you've heard, that he's heard you, that he's heard your plea from the pains of death that surround you. That is something that God must give. May he do that for all who don't know him and may he grant the faith to believe and to walk with him forever. Let's pray. Father, wonderful truth in your word. 
Lord, we just we marvel at your grace to us sinners that you would condescend and come to us and pay any attention to us at all, Lord. Like Zacchaeus up in the tree, you saw him. You knew he was there. You called him down. Surely salvation has come to his house, must come to his house this day. Lord, you know your sheep. You know all that are yours. And you are the true seeker who searches them all out. Lord, I pray that through the ministry of your word, you would seek and find and shepherd all your people. Lord, that you would break through and be the Lord of their lives in every respect. Father, we totally recognize, we recognize our dependence on you, Lord, for everything. You are our very life. We don't breathe without you and we don't spiritually breathe without you. Help us, Lord. Help us to look to you in faith for every trial in life. To know that you are God. To know that every battle is, is really yours, Lord, and you just call us to trust you. Help us, Father. We love you because you first loved us. We love each other because you've given us your very love for each other. Thank you for this body. Thank you for all your children. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.